This is LifeLinks with a DL link. Five minutes past 12 o'clock. Good afternoon to you. What a beautiful Thursday afternoon it is in Johannesburg. This moment right now is perfect. And wow, I mean, our constitution is alive and well. Justice Mohueng Mohueng, of course, making that decision, um, or rather saying that uh, the Speaker um, of Parliament can decide whether there will be a secret ballot or not. We wait and we see, but just to listen, I don't know if you were listening to um, uh, just Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng earlier. Fascinating. What a man. And you know, the one thing about living in South Africa just feels as if history is being created every sort of every day, really. It, it is quite an interesting thing to observe. So there we have it. And um, well, we're about to go into a, a little room, you and I, and I just recommend you closing the door and just turning up the volume because the next hour is really, really going to be um, a very interesting hour. We're going to be talking all aspects. I have such a fascinating warrior in the studio. In fact, the very second show, the, the second show that I did on the DL link, she was the second warrior that I interviewed. And I'm really delighted um, that uh, Lana Jacobson will be joining us again this afternoon um, and sharing a lot more than just her story, just the extraordinary things that she is doing with her life. Then the laughter professor is going to be in the studio and uh, we're going to be talking about how do you deal with adversity and what is laughter and uh, how can laughter help us when we have to uh, face all these challenges and that is Shireen Richter um, that will be happening around about 20 past 12. Dr. Paul Palmer is going to be joining us. He's the head of health and nutrition um, with the Vegan Society of South Africa. He's a chiropractor, so he looks at plant-based nutrition, um, and we're going to be looking at that. Um, so really just a range of fascinating discussions coming your way. I always invite you to join the conversation, to be a part of this conversation. We love to hear from you, whether you're sharing a story, whether you're asking a question, your input is always welcome. So if you do have a pen and paper, just quickly jot the numbers down. You can SMS us here in the studio on 34519. That's 34519. Or you can contact us directly on 074-654-7335. That's 074-654-7335. Because, of course, this is the DL Link Show on 101.9 High FM, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. We're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back. This is LifeLinks with a DL Link. LifeLinks is a DL Link fundraising initiative. If you are in business and you would like to support the DL Link, consider advertising or sponsoring the show. This is LifeLinks with a DL Link. Walking with Warriors. Welcome back to the DL Link Show. I'm Nikki Seberini and really looking forward to being with you for the next hour here on 101.9 High FM. Our warrior, Lana Jacobson. As I said, uh, Lana, you were my second warrior. And uh, I loved, loved having you in the studio then. And I just love always sitting opposite you and, and uh, listening to your stories. Thank you, Nikki. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Lana, the last time we shared the story, I mean, you spoke about your cancer journey. You were diagnosed in 2014. Okay. But we, we focused a lot on how you first came into contact with the DL Link. And I will never forget you describing Gabby trying to get hold of you. And you were not interested. You weren't interested. No, I didn't want In this any, person, Gabby. No, no. I didn't want him to keep phoning me. I didn't want anybody. I was private. I didn't want anyone to know about my journey. And um, I considered this as a, an intrusion. In You know, the phone calls, can they come and help? Can they come and visit me? I thought, oh, my gosh, what on earth can they offer me? You know, I really didn't want any part of this. Mm -mm. But then you relented. Well, he, well or he, you either relented or he just pushed a hell of a lot well, harder. Well, he pushed. I didn't want to take no for an answer. And... Uh, 
I relented and he came and he visited me within half an hour. It was love at first sight. Was it? Oh, everyone <laughs> he, loves Gabby. Gabby is, has, is my hero. So he uh, is. He's a very, very special man. And that was the beginning of your relationship with the DL Link. Yes, yes. And they've been there along this journey with you. And how would you describe them, Lance? I don't think anybody can uh, go through a cancer journey without support. And if you need a support group, I don't think you can do better than DL Link. They are, there are no words to describe mm. the, the, the goodness, the generosity, the generosity of spirit, the functions, the caring. And look, the, the people who run it are just beautiful, beautiful people. Mm. They become part of your family. Mm. Mm. So Gabby's like a member of the family. He this, is a member. He is a, he's a member of the family. <laughs> so Lonnie, you are so busy. I mean, you do incredible things. I always talk about the one time I had you on the show years ago and we spoke about how you went up to Africa um, mm. and you spent time with the gorillas and you're adventurous and you're open mm. and you love experience. And so you are doing incredible things. And the first thing I want to talk about is this children's book that you wrote. And I want to know why you wrote it. And I'm sure that there are many parents who are listening right now who would absolutely be able to relate to a book called A Good Night's Sleep, either relate to it or just wish and wish that they could have a good night's sleep. What made you write a children's book? Well, first of all, I know that there are no parents, or if there are, they're in a minority, whose children do sleep through the night. The horror of my babies when I, when I first had them, never having a night's sleep I never got over. Children like to sleep in their parents' bed. And when I, uh, I read a lot of children's literature and there was nothing written about children coming into their parents' beds every single night. Nobody has a good night's sleep and the child's uh, fear of the dark or not sleeping at night. And so I wrote a storybook for children called A Good Night's Sleep, which is encourages them to sleep in their own bed, makes fun of it, and is for parents to reach children, and even children of six or seven can read themselves, um, called a good night's sleep. And what actually I love pro- it. promoted it was my daughter's, my grandson, Gabriel, was born, and um, we were soulmates from the very beginning. Yes. And um I wrote the book for Gabriel, A Good Night's Sleep, so that he would sleep in his own bed. And it just <laughs> took off, and it's just done, you know, very well, and I've been very lucky with it. And, and so people are enjoying the book, Lana. Love, the children love it, and the parents love it. Because I love it. I love the illustrations. I love, in, uh, the, 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 I, I love the expressions on the faces. I love the feet. When you've got them lying in bed, you see feet everywhere. What, what, what's the greatest compliment you've got? Well, the greatest compliment I've got is uh, uh, when the children of six and five hold on to the book and they won't give it to anybody else. And if they've got a sister or brother and they both fight for the book, you know. That's uh, fantastic. The children seem to really like hearing it because it's a bedtime story. And... um and the parents like it because it it encourages the children subliminally mm. to sleep in their own beds at night. So where can people get hold of the book, Lana? Okay, so it's an exclusive in Santon yes. and I think in Eastgate and um, the distributors are busy now delivering to all the exclusives. Bargain Books have got it as well. I don't know about Reader's Warehouse yet. Was um, it difficult to get the book, to get it published, to get it out there? Was it a difficult process for you? It's very difficult to get books published now um, and uh, illustrated children's books. But uh, no, I was very lucky. They fell in love with the book. It just flowed, so, eh? Yes, yes. And so, and um, they, the, the, Publisher got a fantastic illustrator, and so it worked out. But you love your writing. I mean, you've you've written many books. You you're a ghostwriter as well. Yes. And in fact, I've got this book, Unstoppable, the Natalie Knight story. Now, how did this come across? First of all, tell us who Natalie Knight is. Well, Natalie Knight is an institution in the art world, mm. and um, as early as the. 70s, early 70s, when things were really dangerous, she would go into the township and into the villages and find the art of the Indabelli, which she discovered and put on the map, and which is now in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington Amazing. and in the British, Uni- uh, British Museum. And Thanks to Natalie Knight. Yeah, it's, wow. it's her. Yes. Yeah. 
It's her work on Inderbelly, and she's curated, and she's had art galleries here and everything, and it's uh, for history. And, in fact, there are two books written on Natalie, one for her children as a journal, as, as a memoir, and then because she's got so many children and grandchildren mm. and family, mm. and another one that will be available and exclusive. And So what happens, Lon? I mean, did, do you know her personally? How did it come about that you then wrote her book for her, her story? Well, I think she knows my writing because I've written for her before. That usually happens with people that I work with. And um, she entrusted me with it, and I ran with it, and I loved doing it. Um, because really, ostensibly, you're the person's voice. You know what I'm saying? So they, yes. there's got to be a relationship. They have to trust you. They've got to enjoy your style of writing. Is it difficult writing for someone else to be a ghostwriter? Um, I don't know any differently. So really? I don't, uh, you, you know, um, I suppose not really for me. Um, do you have to get into their head? Do you have I to have spend to a lot? How, how do you, how do you become the voice of that person? I, I read them and I feel them. I do feel you? the people I'm writing with. I live with them in my head. Um, for a few days before I start writing and when I'm writing and I actually feel them and they become intrinsic in, you know, to mm. me and that, you know, and I do my research, which takes. Must be a fascinating journey. Well, hey, finding out about others, writing about them, their story must be wonderful. I love people and I love their stories. I found that every human being has got a story and there are so many people who wish to be able to put it on paper or to have a ghost-written person write their memoir or write a story uh, on them, and they can't do it. So I've been doing a lot of that for people, and I've been uh, tutoring now people and writing in their memoirs oh, I want their hear, journal. I, I want to hear more about that because I think that that's fascinating. I think there's a wonderful healing in that. But talking about the healing for you, your treatment. I'm sure there are days you wake up with what you've experienced, you're feeling good. There are other days you're feeling awful. What is writing for you? Is writing an escape? Is writing an opportunity to remove yourself from where you are? Does it ground you? How has writing helped you or just been a part of the journey whilst on your journey? Now, I think writing is cathartic and I think it's, it? um, I don't know differently. Well, I don't know how not to write. Mm. So that that's what I do. But it hasn't blocked you, Lana, is what I'm saying. So with, with when you're feeling awful and when you haven't thought, I, I'm just, I'm so ill or I'm just feeling so bad, I can't write. Like, what is writing for you? Is it an escape? Is it your opportunity to leave everything else behind and go into the writing world? Are you more creative, less creative? What's, what's it been like for you? Well, I think I just get into the world I'm writing and I live it and I feel it. Um, mm. I found myself very frustrated when it was really, um, what can I, the word, the real word is shocking from the chemo, yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm. And I found I was frustrated when I couldn't work. But I wrote those while I was having chemo and uh, they, I think they helped to get me through. And that's when I embarked on the, on the, I shouldn't call it, but it is a journey of one person, then two people told me they wanted to write their memoir. And then so I started coaching and doing helping people ghost writing for them or sitting and teaching people to write their own story because people have got so much to tell. Mm. And when they're gone, there is no, it's gone. There's no record. And the history of life or journey and a journal for people to keep for their families, for their children mm. and for them to be cathartic, things that they can't talk about that they can put in writing for family, for friends, for people to see, or as memoirs on online for with self-printing. Mm, love that. Let's take a break. We're going to be back. Um, our, the Laughter Professor is in the studio. Looking so forward to chatting with Shireen. Stay with us. This is Lifelinks with a DL link. LifeLinks is a DL Link fundraising initiative. If you are in business and you would like to support the DL Link, consider advertising or sponsoring the show. This is LifeLinks with a DL Link. Walking with Warriors. 
21 minutes past 12 o'clock, you are tuned to 101.9 High FM. And of course, this is the DR Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. Our wonderful warrior in the studio this afternoon is Lana Jacobson. Lana's talking about the books that she's written. She's talking about uh, these workshops or one-on-one um, what is it, Lana? Just helping tutoring, the, tutoring, yes, helping people well, write their journals, their story. Uh, I think it's it, it, it's very popular, especially among people who are going through crisis, or if you uh, have got cancer and you want to write about your journey, a memoir on it. But even people in everyday life, they want to leave a, a, a record, a history. Imagine the Holocaust survivors if we didn't write their stories. You so know. why? What is it about writing a story? Is it are we blocked? I mean, why doesn't everyone just sit down and write a story? Do you need some kind of inspiration? Where do you start, and how do you help tutor people to write their story? We all know our story. We write it. How do we get into it? How, how do we? How we're able to pin our story? Well, you first do a rough outline of what's happened, and then you write what you think, and then I correct it, or we go through it together. You know, as a memo. Uh, as um, a memoir, sorry, and um, it just works. I don't know. It must be fascinating for also parts of the history that you don't really want to delve into. Yes, you know what I'm you know, saying? I mean, how do you work that? Is that look, something everybody's that got skeletons in their closet. Some want it in their memoirs and some, some don't. don't want it. <laughs> but a lot do because they want to leave things for posterity. Mm. They want to leave something for grandchildren mm. and for children. Once... You you do these. Some people do these amazing things. They get old, they die, and children and grandchildren know nothing about the mm. history. Is stopped there, yeah. and we need to connect. We need to belong. I agree. Mm. I absolutely agree with you. Your history, where you came from. My father's done that. You know, he's actually written his own story. Well, that's exactly what I do. That's people it. writing I, their story, and I love it. And I've so enjoyed reading it. A couple of years ago, I read it, and I just got so many insights into my father that that I never had before. Finding out about my grandmother and their stories, and it's just a take. It took. My, it took, you know, I saw my father in a certain way. He was always my father. And then I got to see him as a little boy and I got to see him as a teenager and I got to see him as a person in love and I got to see his dreams and ambitions. And it was a such a privilege to be able to experience my father in that way. So I, I think that anyone who could do that, it's a great, as you say, a gift um, it's not a only gift to, to families and to, and to the person that's doing it. it. That's it. They feel that they, their life is, what is love? What is the purpose mm. of love? They're mm. leaving something behind. Mm. You I know? do love that. I mm. do love that very much. And, and, and I found that everybody can write. Mm. They sit next to me and if they're given the encouragement... And if you let them just relax, if it's like almost like meditating and listening to classic music. People have got a block about it. But <clears throat> the minute you give them just a bit of relaxation just open and it acceptance up. and mm. open it up and brainstorm with them, it's it's cathartic, mm. it's uh, it's inspirational, and it's history-making, as you can see from Natalie's. Mm, fantastic, a wonderful <coughs> expression. And you mentioned the word cathartic, and you said that for you as well, I mean, you wrote both of these books um, while uh, you were going through your treatment, and you said that it, it helped a lot. Oh, so, yes. So, so something else that is also very cathartic, and I think that it's something that we maybe think that when things are serious, we don't want to laugh, but a laugh, a good laugh from the belly is such an incredible way of just releasing any tension. And it's a way of going from darkness into light so very, very quickly. But I certainly can't explain it properly, but I do have Shireen Richter, who is the laughter professor in the studio to tell us a little bit more. Shireen. The last time we chatted, I was on another station. We laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed the whole show. Craig, you're going to just switch on that mic if you don't mind. We, I remember we did some exercise and I giggled and giggled and I walked away and I felt as if my heart had expanded. I felt like my stomach was warm. I felt free. I felt light. It was wonderful. But we're talking about serious subjects, Shireen. Laughter is there. 
in all situations, isn't it? Absolutely. But hi, Nikki. And yes, welcome, I welcome. do remember that. Oh, and in fact, I remember laughing with Nick Rabinovitz. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember that oh, we day very laugh. well. Because we Nick laugh. actually said he doesn't laugh a lot. And oh. he, he's the comedian. He, he thought I was quite crazy. Oh. Um, I think laughter really is the best medicine, the age-old saying. But the way that I use laughter is not that we laugh at the funny in life. And I think so many people, cancer survivors, uh, people going through chemo, people just going through life need resiliency skills. Mm. And we need a way to help deal with the traumas, the stresses, the everyday things, paying bills. And we just aren't equipped with it. But yet we forget about the biggest gift that Hashem has given us, which is laughter. Mm. It's been given to every single human being. And what I teach is really not about just laughing at jokes or laughing at funny things, but really using it to build inner strength. Because when you do laugh, certain physiological and biochemical things happen in the body and the brain. And that's what you're actually wanting. You're wanting the oxygen in your brain. You're wanting to get your brain to release endorphins and serotonin and opiates and oxytocin and all those amazing drugs which lift you mm. and um laughter is wonderful yeah and working uh, i've worked extensively with the dr link i've worked with oncology patients and been through my own personal journey in my own family with my mom mm. well this is what i wanted to ask you with your mom because you've i mean we have we've discussed it publicly before and that is what a tough journey and yet you're the laughter coach and you go out and you go into companies and you're helping people with resilience and connecting with that very important side of themselves as you've said it's not laughing at life but it's finding a way of just removing oneself Mm. and and finding a joy and finding that inner spirit how have you coped with those difficult times should we with finding the laughter when actually all you wanted to do was cry So it's a really interesting thing. I feel, I mean, I'm going through a a real trauma personally at the moment. And um, I always say that Hashem tests me constantly. Hmm. And he tests me so that I can be authentic in what I do. And I'll just give you a a, a very brief story of what happened. But um, when my mom was first diagnosed um, with lung cancer, there was a time she had to have an operation. And at the exact time that she was being operated on and having this big biopsy, I had two half an hour workshops at one of the biggest healthcare companies in the country. And um, I thought, how on earth am I ever going to do this? And my mother's my life. She's my everything. How am I going to go and laugh while I know my mother's under anesthetic having Mm. this huge operation? Mm. And um, what happened the night before is that I sat having dinner, sobbing my eyes out. And I actually said to my my oldest son, who was 17 at the time, he's 21 now, I said, I, I think Hashem's playing a sick joke on me. How honestly am I supposed to go out and laugh? This wasn't even about resiliency. This was laughter for wellness. So it was two half an hour sessions of making hundreds of people happy, laughing when actually all I wanted to do was cry. And he said to me, and I'll never forget his words. He said, Mommy, God's not playing a sick joke on you. But if you can't live what you teach and say to people that no matter what adversity you're going through in life, this is going to change the way you feel and give you strength, you have to live what you do. And then it will make sure. it authentic for people. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. I cried the whole way to my client. Mm. I arrived at my client with big swollen eyes and tears streaming down my face. I looked the complete opposite of a laughter and happiness professor. And I walked in and I actually shared the story with my group. And I said, this is what I'm going through. So this is as much a blessing for me as it is for you. And for an hour we laughed. And what I found is when I did get back to the hospital to my mom, I could cope. I wasn't falling apart. Mm -hmm. I had an inner strength. And that's what I keep telling people about. If you want to run a marathon, you're going to train. doesn't mean you're going to run everywhere. You're going to have a time for it, and that's when you run. Mm. The same with resiliency or laughter or happiness skills. You learn them, and you have a time for them. Like there would be a time you would meditate or a time you would go to gym. Um, you know, if you're an ice skater, you don't skate everywhere. You have a, a space for it, and that's the same thing. And people need to know more about it because it's a gift that every human being on the earth has, 
And it's one thing we don't need to, do, to be taught. So I often say, if you look at the human body, we have eyes, ears, nose for a reason. We have a heart. We have lungs. We have kidneys for a reason. Do we use them when we're in the mood? Do we use well, them when we feel like it? Mm, listen, it's, it's, it's very interesting because as you said, there are the two aspects of it. There's the aspect of when you find something funny. You watch comedy or you yes. have a conversation. There's something funny. You laugh. But laughter is there as a release mechanism. It's to release Absolutely. the tension. And so so what we're saying is we can only react when something is funny. But what you're saying is that if you can dig deep and you can actually use laughter as that release mechanism, because we, we are very scared of emotions, aren't we? Unless it's just the feel-good emotion. When it's the feel-bad emotion, we tend to push it down. And so when we're feeling bad, we want to push it down. And we, we, we don't – so what I think you're saying is that – Using laughter when we're feeling bad yes. is a great way of releasing. Absolutely. So it's, almost, it's a skill that you have to learn. It is a skill and there is a practice of how to actually do it. And the theory behind it is we laugh not because we're happy but to make ourselves so happy. happy. Because, I mean, if we're feeling bad, the last thing we Absolutely. think we want to do, we think we want to do is, is laugh. laugh. You don't. It, it's almost like ridiculous. It's the complete opposite. Yeah. If you're feeling traumatized or depressed or sad, the last thing you actually feel like doing is laughing. Is laughing. But yet when you do it, I did a talk on Tuesday night and I myself was feeling terrible and was just praying that they would cancel and people wouldn't arrive. And anyway, it landed up that it, it happened. And... um you can't believe the response that I got afterwards. Mm. Some of the women that were there sent me messages saying, I arrived grumpy. I didn't feel like being there. I was irritable. I left in the best mood. I woke up in the best mood the next day. Thank you. And mm. that's really what it's about is mm. that we, we don't have a strategy for happiness. Mm. We expect happiness. We expect to wake up every morning and feel happy. And when we don't, we feel disillusioned. We feel like we're a victim. But if you want to attain anything in life, you have to work at it. You want to be fit and healthy. You've got to train. You've got to eat well. You've got to have a strategy. You've got a business. You want to grow the business. You have to have a strategy. Well, what's your strategy for happiness? If you ask people, I'll never most forget, don't have one. I, I agree, but I, and I'll never forget. Um, there was the movie Steel Magnolias. I don't know if you. I mean, we're yes. going back way, yeah. way back, and there was a particular scene with Sally Field, and it was it was a very, very powerful scene. And she had lost her daughter Julia Roberts to cancer, and she was devastated. And her her friend, they were. She was arguing with her friends and she was crying and it was so emotional and then all of a sudden the one Greek friend I don't know if she slapped her across the face I don't know if she just cracked a joke I don't remember exactly what it was but they started to laugh and it was at this mother's lowest point having just lost her daughter and all of a sudden they started to laugh and it just it just released that tension from tears to laughter to connection to love it was an amazing thing. It was an amazing thing to experience, Shireen. A wonderful thing to it see. It really does. And the, the power in laughter is that nothing external changes, but everything internally Internal. does. There we go. And that's the power. So what you'll find is when you do have a really good laugh with a friend or you do laughter exercises, you just feel lighter. You feel good. And that was my experience the first time I ever did a laughter session is that I was going through a whole family trauma at the time. And this was many, many years ago. And I left feeling like I was on drugs. And I kept thinking, how did this happen? Nothing's ha changed. My situation hasn't changed. Um, all my problems are still there. But I feel better. And when you feel better, you can cope with what you have to deal with. Mm. Lance, you're nodding. I mean, is this something that you could do? I mean, your lowest of your low, feeling awful, the challenges, whatever it is. Could you use laughter? How do, I mean, how oh, do you feel about it? Absolutely. I yes? think it's brilliant. Um, mm. uh, I, I really, uh, it resonates with me. I often just would do anything for a good laugh. And a it's a laugh. form of release and I'm sure coping with your problems afterwards, the same as we were talking about journal writing or memoir it. writing. It's cathartic. Mm. And I think I, I often make a joke with friends of mine when they phone, I'm feeling terrible. I say to them, 
Send Woody Allen to the end of my bed, please. Oh. I mean, Woody Allen. <laughs> so uh, uh, half people hate him, but I'll say just send him to me. For I'd a like go. Woody but, Allen, but the, the laughter therapy would do just as well uh. because you just feel like a laugh. Mm. So, Shireen, I mean, people listening, laughter therapy—is it a difficult thing to access? Is it—is it a difficult skill? very easy because we all already know how to do it so it's Mm. not like we have to learn something new i think the biggest thing around it is having a cognitive understanding of what you're actually doing so you have to know that laughter coaching or laughter therapy is really not about jokes or humor because everyone has a different sense of humor everyone finds different things funny but it's really about getting drugs we want those feel-good drugs. When we laugh, we also boost our immune system. It releases the white killer T cells. And so our immune system is boosted. And we feel so much better. So there's, they did research and they found that the brain actually can't tell the difference between real and simulated laughter. Which means if you're laughing because you heard a funny joke or you're simply laughing to get the drugs, the brain can't tell the difference in the body reacts in the same way so it's a really easy thing to teach people the hard thing is getting people to actually drop their egos Mm. and actually allow themselves to laugh Mm. allow themselves to let go permission uh, give themselves permission Mm. to actually laugh and Mm. we've we've kind of conditioned ourselves that as adults we have to be serious or people will think we're stupid or silly and in fact that's the opposite so i would say that's the most challenging thing for a a person trying to do this is to actually allow themselves Mm. can i ask you something do you find that people who are traumatized or having a you know a drama or something Mm -hmm. and you want to bring laughter therapy in which I I agree is brilliant but do they feel guilty about laughing when something's serious because they condition people are conditioned to be serious I think it's not even a matter of feeling guilty I think it's more a matter of like how will this seem? Mm. Yeah, that's you know, what I mean. like feel that what will be inappropriate? Think because yes, because I have mm. to be the victim, you know. Yes. And and we so we so easily fall into yes. that role of having to say, I've got to be the victim, so I must look sad, and I'm yes. going through this, so I can't smile or I yes. can't um, appear to be happy. But in actual fact, we need to change people's mindsets. Yes. That's what people have to realize. You know, when you act happy, you start to feel happy. When you act miserable which is our most unfortunately how most people act you know like the first thing we do is moan complain groan I do an exercise with my corporates where we have a happy chat and I I partner people up and, and I get these executives to say right for two minutes you each get a chance to speak about all the amazing things in your life that happened yesterday that made you happy and people's jaws drop and they look at me like what do you mean? Hmm. What are you talking about? I mean, what must I say? Embarrassed to be happy. But but they can't even think of anything yeah. to say. Mm. And then... It's a mindset. It's they, a complete they, they, they mindset. They have framed their minds to see the happy. Absolutely. That and then I say to them, happy. is two minutes long? And they go, so, so long. long. So I'm like, okay, well, you've got a two-minute lunch break today. Mm. You know, put it in perspective. Mm. But if I said you've got 20 minutes to tell me about all the things that are wrong in your not life. Not enough time. It's not enough time. Mm. And so that's really what it's about is it's about that. re-educating ourselves yeah. that happiness is a choice and that we have to work at, uh, work at it and we have to give ourselves permission to be happy. Shireen, thank you. Beautiful. I, I think mm. such an important message. We have to give ourselves permission and that we are very much in control of it and that there are skills that we can learn. It yes. doesn't, we don't have to be feeling happy to no. laugh and get the benefits of the laughter. We can Absolutely. turn it around. I love that. Shireen, how do people get hold of you? So they can get hold of me. They can check out my website, which is called laughtercoachingoneword.coza. Mm-hmm. Or um, on there has got all my details. Or they can email at info at laughtercoaching.coza. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank Laughter you so Professor. much. Nikki. It's so always, lovely having you in the studio. Wonderful to beautiful, see you. beautiful lady. We're going to take a break and then we're talking food, guys. We're talking veganism. We're talking about are we really, really aware of what the foods are doing to our systems each and every time we eat a meal? Stay with us. This is LifeLinks with a DL link. LifeLinks is a DL Link fundraising initiative. 
If you are in business and you would like to support the DL Link, consider advertising or sponsoring the show. This is LifeLinks with a DL Link. Walking with Warriors. 19 minutes to 1 o'clock. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. Um, and the one thing, um, Lana, and Lana is our warrior today, is when it comes, and we're getting a little bit personal here, right. like your diet. You're yes. a vegetarian. Yes, I am. You've been a vegetarian for many years. Yes, I have. Why? Um, I've been a vegetarian for about 40 years, actually. Wow. My family aren't. None of them. And... Um, you know what? I don't want to sound holier than thou. Vegetarians and vegans, <laughs> they come as being righteous. No, I don't but, think they do. But I'll carry on with that, yes. But um, I do opinion. because yeah. for ethical reasons, I don't, I just feel that I can't harm anything. And so I just. So 40 years ago, you became a vegetarian. In South Africa, let's just go back 40 years, there was no kind of vegetarian product on the shelves whatsoever. It must have been very difficult. It was impossible. You would have, I mean, if you tell someone you were a vegetarian or you went out, you would have a gem squash with tin sweet corn or yes. tin peas <laughs> and gem squash. There was no such thing. I mean, when I became a vegetarian, there wasn't even like a word for it. I mean, there were vegetarians, but you didn't know how to describe yourself. So you would, everyone would have a main meal with steak and chips and everything. Mm. And the thing that they left on their plate was the little gem squash or the little tin Which, is, which was your meal. And that was my meal, you know. <laughs> so there was no such thing as vegetable proteins and, you know, and that kind of thing. Just it wasn't a science. And it's amazing how it's evolved. And um, just how there's so many products out there And even just the, the kind of vegetables that we're now eating Now that we're aware of it I mean kale, everyone's into kale And and then you've got all these products that You know, you've got vegans now Who don't eat any animal products at all And yet they'll eat something um, They can still have a cafe latte or whatever it is Because of the milk It's not normal milk You've got almond milk You've got almond rice milk You've got also It's amazing So this whole world has opened up And you know, when I did um, a show on HiFM before we looked at Meat Free Mondays and we spent quite a lot of time talking about Meat Free Mondays and talking about the industry, the farming industry, the livestock industry and just what it's really doing to our planet. It's one thing we don't look at, at, at what it's actually doing to our planet but that's another discussion. We're looking at it very much from a health perspective that every time we sit down to a meal, every time we put food in our mouths are we aware, are we conscious of what we are consuming and what kind of impact it's having on our energy levels, what kind of impact it's having on our health. And there have been so many incredible movies. So listen, we have got the expert in the studio um, and I'm very excited to have him in the studio because he in fact is a vegan and he's not pale, he's not emaciated, he's not for, he's gorgeous. He's gorgeous. I mean, we're on, we, we don't feel like we're coming on to you Dr. Paul, but you really, really do look very good. Looks very healthy. Dr. Paul Palmer, he is a chiropractor and a plant based nutrition specialist mm. and also health and nutrition portfolio for the Vegan Society of South Africa. Dr. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Am I on? You're on. I'm on. You're All on. Right. You're on, Dr. Yeah, Paul. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> let, me, let me take these headphones off okay. and just talk like okay. that. Yeah, great to be here. Great to shed some light on things because I think the whole the whole thing behind it is, like you mentioned earlier, the vegetarian vegan community can come across a little bit righteous or whatnot. Yes. So. My passion is actually to go around and lay the truth down and yes. say you cannot jump up and down and say I'm vegan or I'm vegetarian, therefore I'm healthy. It's just not the case. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of specifics that need to be done. So I like to refer to it more as a ratio between proper foods, all right? Like um, unprocessed foods. We'll be looking at coming from the ground and those are the unprocessed foods that you're eating compared to, I call them like the um, instant gratification foods that we like to eat because you've got to remember that there's a psychology behind this. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And most people are making decisions from the more the primitive part of their brain because right. we've got life has got us so stressed and whatnot. And this is where the laughter I was listening earlier comes into play is because if you're in the stress part of your brain, 
all your brain is trying to do is to know, can I mate with this thing? Can I eat this thing? Or must I flee or fight? Or mate, mate, no, well, what was ma- it? Mate, eat? Mate, eat, <laughs> run, run, off, run or fight? <laughs> and the last one, very important for new information, or is it, can I ignore it? Ah, okay. Because your brain is a cognitive miser, all right? So... If you wanted to get something through to the neocortex for processing, that's going to take a lot of brain power. So what the reptilian brain does, it goes and says, is this thought novel enough or valuable enough to get through there? And if not, and if it shakes me and my beliefs, you're going to get a knee-jerk, no. And you tell somebody, you know, why don't you stop eating meat a little bit? And then they look and they go into their mind and then their whole life is just meat, meat, meat. And they're like, where do I fit this? I can't fit it in. And they just just say, no. Uh So what I try and do is to go and say, look, I'm just trying to get people to at least know which direction they've got to go in if they want the health benefits that, you know, have been now shown with a plant-based diet. You have to be going in that direction. Because if you look at it, the number one killer of people in South Africa is heart disease, Mm -hmm. all right? Mm -hmm. Directly related to cholesterol. And it's a reversible disease. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like we can just stop it. We can take a clogged artery and we can unblock it within three to four years on a new diet. That's only possible if you remove the cause. You don't have to take statins. No, you don't have not to, at all. They've actually shown Brazil nuts works basically as well as a statin. Really? Just eating Brazil nuts. There's and Brazil bo- nuts, I believe, are very good for the brain Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. So now, well, then the thing is you can imagine if, you, if Brazil nuts have tr- helped drop the cholesterol, it is going to be good for the brain. Because what they're also finding these days is that what happens is if you've got these little plaques where there's a bit of cholesterol floating around, what happens is this cholesterol finds its way up into with the big blood vessels going into the brain. Yeah. It circulates, but it never finds its way out. So if you look at Alzheimer's patients and they even have done autopsies, their brains are fatty, filled of fatty things which are now preventing the synapses from carrying forward all of these neural uh, transmissions. Really? And that's why the functioning starts to deteriorate. So I try and look at it very mechanistically. Okay. Like how easy is it? What is heart disease? It's basically that you're getting little sores, like little pimples, on the inside of all of your blood vessels throughout your body and the main danger is if one of those little sores actually ruptures. Because if it ruptures, you're going to get a, a clot in that particular artery. Now, you can imagine if it happens in the brain or around the brain, that's a stroke. If it happens around your heart, that's a heart attack. Mm-hmm. But then all of these other ischemic pains that people experience as they get older, maybe we're just not attributing them to the original cause. Because as a chiropractor, it was fascinating for me to find out the direct link between having high cholesterol and back degeneration. Because the arteries that supply your spine are actually very susceptible to this problem because they don't actually feed the discs of your spine directly. They run parallel and the nutrition has to diffuse across. So if these vessels get a little bit blocked. So your spine's not getting enough blood. Yeah, they won't get enough nutrients into it and that accelerates the process. Obviously, we know sitting is the new smoking, you know, but... If you've got bad posture because you don't know how to fight gravity, a eh? mm. right? I'm sorry, I'm just no, no, no. <coughs> I'm just changing my position. Doctor Paul is watching. Yeah, no, because <laughs> I was slumping. Now mm. I'm sitting up. Right, carry so, on. So it's basically just like if we use a premise of of the posture thing and use something simple that everyone can relate to. Suffer pain. Use pain as an example. Mm. If you had to take anyone and you said to them, imagine your car had an oil leak. All right. And you went to the mechanic and your little red light is flashing on your dashboard. And you said, Joe, please, can you help me out? And Joe said, don't worry. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take a beautiful color coded sticker to match your dashboard. And we're going to put a sticker over the warning light. So you can't see the warning light anymore. Mm. Anyone going to take that advice? No. So why do people accept a painkiller when the doctor gives them a painkiller for back pain? Mm. It's a, it's a very Because if you didn't question. get pain, you'd, you'd, you'd die. Because mm. it's, it's an indicator for threshold for risk. Like when you do exercise, why do you get a burning pain? To let you know you're fatiguing because now you can't support yourself and it's a better idea not to carry on with that exercise. So this is what pain does. When we are being marketed to like it's a problem. Same Get thing, rid of it. Suppress yeah, it. Same thing now you use the same logic for something like diabetes. High blood sugar is not diabetes. Diabetes is the fact that the sugar can't get from the blood vessel into the cell. So now if you go say on a low carbohydrate diet, you put less carbs in. So your blood sugar goes down. But have you affected the ability of the sugar to get from the blood vessel into the cell? Not at all. So we're looking at a metric, which is an indication of disease. It's not the disease itself. And that's why we're not winning. That's why we're not winning. You see, because you're not looking at the cause. Do you see what I mean? If the cause of the leaking oil is the leaking oil, it's the warning light is not the problem. You see, you don't mm. see the motor car industry mm. going crazy about all these warning lights that are coming on. Why? Go to source. They put them there. Mm. Do you see what okay. I mean? So things like pain, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all of these things are indications of an issue 
And if we just go with, say, say here's a statin, here's, you know, some metformin, we drop the cholesterol, drop the blood sugar, why do the people still end up needing surgeries? Why do they still get diabetic foot? Why do they still get diabetic neuropathy? One of the most difficult pains to fix, and a plant-based diet has been shown to fix that in some cases within four to six days. Let's take a break, yeah, Dr. Paul. Sorry, so, I can so be no, quite no, no, over, I love it. I'm like loving what you're saying. There, yeah. We're going to get a, a, t- a quick break. So cool. I'm, uh, my understanding yeah. of what you are saying here is that a plant-based diet is the way to fix all of this. So let's yeah. well, let's go back to it. Listen, if you've got any questions for Dr. Paul, do SMS us 34519. Stay with us. This is LifeLinks with a DL link. If you are in business and you would like to support the DL Link, consider advertising or sponsoring the show. This is LifeLinks with a DL Link. Walking with Warriors. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. We have um, our wonderful warrior in the studio, studio, Lana Jacobson, and we have the wonderful Dr. Paul Palmer talking about um, plant-based diets. So, Dr. Paul... For those people, and we always say, you know, they always pre- they point to these incisors and yeah, they go, yes, these yes. teeth mm. were made for eating meat. Yeah. We've always eaten meat. You know, I've had Dr. Tim Noakes and I love his, yes. he talks about the banting yes, and yes. our bodies are made mm. for this. Mm. You're saying no plant-based mm. diets and a million people are going to put up their mm. hands and say, rubbish, we were meant to eat meat. Yeah. What, what I would say is just if you look at the anatomy of a human being, more resembles a herbivore than a carnivore because carnivores have a very short digestive system to get the meat in, get the meat out. Because meat staying in the system for a long time is bad because those proteins putrefy and that creates a very alkaline environment in the colon and the colon doesn't do well in alkaline environments. Mm. It's generally better acidic. And this is the thing where if you look at a human intestine, it's like if the ratio, it's like almost three to four times longer than what you'd see in a normal carnivore. And if, if it was natural to go out and eat the meat products, if you put a, a toddler in a, say, in a crib with an apple and a bunny, you can call me one day when the toddler decides to try and eat the bunny and play with the apple. Do you see what I mean? It's not a natural thing for us to see an animal running around and think, I need to go and I need to get through the fur and I need to get to the meat and I need to go and do that. But if you saw a fruit off the side of a tree, that's more, you see, that's natural to go and grab it. Isn't that because it's easier? Isn't it just easier to grab it? Yeah, but then the thing is, would you even be able to? Like if you said, if you went and tried to take down a cow, even if there was five of us, how are we going to get through the skin? Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm. It was only through the advent of the Certainly the not tool. our claws and That's our teeth. Right. Is so what you so then if you want to fight the natural argument, people can't really choose one aspect of like what a lion does and says, that's why we, because I'm like a lion, I'm an apex predator. But lions sleep outside and they sniff each other's bums and they do all of these other things that we as humans would never do. So why do we attach ourselves to a predatorial kind of you know, archetype. So and caveman I, days, it, it served us? It actually did not. Not? Because if you look at, um, you know, the guy's anthropological studies, they never found a lot of uh, bony pieces and all the stuff within these fossils they found. But they always found grain particles mm-hmm. between the molars. Do you see what I mean? We were mainly, and if you look at all the populations that were thriving, the gladiators were the barley men. They're running on carbohydrates. And if you look at... Europe itself basically owes its existence to the potato. If you look at how the potato played such a massive role in Ireland and all of those things, one vegetable, just a potato, was basically the staple for an entire nation. It wasn't beef or pork or fish. You see what I mean? And the one thing about this is if you're looking at animal products, what do we need? What are we chasing from them? It's the two things. It's protein and iron. All right? Mm -hmm. All proteins originate from plants. Because only plants can take nitrogen and turn it into amino acids. So all proteins started from a plant. So now just because an animal ate it and now you're getting it through the animal's flesh, does that make it superior protein? Not at all. Because your body breaks it down to amino acids anyway. Do you see what I mean? This whole Mm. thing about protein combining and all of that. Your body is an amazingly complex machine and it acts like a symphony. So a lot of the researchers, they'll come in and say, this thing studied in isolation does this on the body. It's impossible to say that because you never eat something in isolation. Right. And when you eat things all together, and that's the problem with animal foods, is basically the, the trifecta for heart disease. You've got cholesterol in there because cholesterol is made by the liver. Last time I checked, plants don't have liver, so no cholesterol there. And the other two things is 
trans fats and saturated fats, both found naturally in animal products. And those two fats, when consumed, they make your liver make more cholesterol. So that's actually the big impact. And this is where there's a bit of a problem with saturated fat studies because there's a correction bias. All right. Just to conclude here, it's basically saying that they factor out the cholesterol problem and then look for problems directly related to saturated fat. But if the saturated fat only affects us because it makes your cholesterol go up, you're cooking the books. Because now you're saying cholesterol, uh, the saturated fat doesn't correlate to heart disease, but the only way that it correlates to heart disease is because it raises your cholesterol. So if you factor all of those guys out and only try and measure saturated fat, you're not going to find the link. And that's why research can be so confusing because we're not looking at an oversight. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's why I say don't take what I'm saying just at you know, face value. Don't. And that's something a lot of doctors don't do. I say, don't just take it what I'm saying. Go and investigate it for yourself. And only when something makes sense to a person as an individual will they then take the next step. Because behavioral shift happens within. How long long have you been a vegan for? Four years. Four years. And it's working for you. It's the easiest way to... I mean, I used to have terrible skin in school and all this but it was all related to like the dairy and i used to consume like one to two liters of dairy every day and my face was red and was puffy and i couldn't control my weight i've never found it easier to just not have to count calories not have to think once you know how to do a vegetarian or a proper plant-based diet you don't have to think and you can still eat cakes and you still eat burgers and you can still have all of these wonderful things but because you're not getting the acidifying protein and the trans fats and saturated fats and all of these things it's so much easier to stay trim, stay healthy. And my, me and my family, I have no fear of heart disease, no fear of diabetes, no fear of cancers, no fear of Alzheimer's, no fear of autoimmune diseases, purely because as a medical person, I understand what's the, the biggest thing that I need to mitigate with regards to the risk. And in my opinion, going plant-based is the nutritional equivalent of quitting smoking. We have to have you in the studio again. Anytime. We want to know Anytime. what you have for breakfast, or I want to know what you have for Let's breakfast, lunch, it. and supper. Someone just SMS before, and it's N O A C H S. Is that a Noachs? Before Noachs? No, no. Oh, Noakes. Oh, Tim Noakes. Must be Noakes. Yes, yes. In time, we were not allowed to eat meat, only fruit and animals, ate only vegetables. Okay. I can't make that out. Oh. Me, only eat meat. Not only mm. fruit and animals yeah. ate. Might, only might be referring okay. to just back. You know, we weren't eating as much meat back then, then. and we were actually doing a whole lot better. And mm. the one thing people do ask me is: meat worse today than it was? It is, but it doesn't mean that it was healthy back then. It's just now it's got the additional toxins and antibiotics and steroids growth hormone, yes, and all everything. of that. So that you didn't find back, you know, 50 years ago, but now you do. But it doesn't mean that that meat, meat was then good for was. You yeah, then. It's just okay. way worse now. That's you. all. Yeah, Dr. Paul, you're definitely going to join us yeah, again. Please, You've given time. us a lot to think about, yeah. a lot to little think seeds, about. Little seeds. Thank you so much My for coming pleasure. onto the show. It's been great. Lana, lovely having you on the show. Thank you all for the best me. with your journaling and your tutoring. It's been fabulous, Lana Jacobson um, and uh, Dr. Paul Palmer, Shireen Richter, Laughter Professor. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I certainly have, and I look really forward to being with you same time next week. From me, Nikki Seberini, take care. Goodbye. This is Lifelinks with a DL Link.